Little Domino, artist in France, are mad about the Mona Lisa. Big Domino, the invention of risotto. You know? <laughs> right. Yes. yes. <laughs> Grain shortage in Italy. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Unbelievable, the podcast where I tell my good friend two unbelievable stories from history. But here's the catch. One of them is real. One of them is fake. And I have to guess which one's which. That's right. I am privately wealthy, publicly stupid, Luis Mejia. Joined by famed art collector and definitely not just the public-facing front of a money laundering scheme, Kurt Danner. (laughs) And we are once more back here with you to share some of the coolest, most exciting stories from history. I've been cooking up some really interesting stuff for tonight's episode. I'm feeling the the train going. I'm feeling the traction has lessened on these train wheels, meaning Ooh. that I am trying to bring my best. Since I won last episode, I'm hoping to really fool Kurt once again because I've, I've I've fallen in a bit of a rut not being able to to fool my my dear pal Curtis into believing any of the stories I tell him. So that's been a blow to the ego the last couple of months, frankly. But <laughs> today we are planning on spinning that around and hopefully taking a W today. But since I will be taking the reins of this episode today, I'm going to pass it over really quickly to Kurt for a fun fact to hopefully grease our engines of truth or fake detection so kurt have you a fun fact i do i do and i love that you've got a lot of train metaphors in here i don't know if you have trains on the mind but you're like this train is picking up momentum and we're off the rails and grease up these engines baby i don't know i I feel like i love it that's the energy of this podcast you know i'm going i'm going to be uh honest with you kurt and maybe a mild spoiler but both stories feature fascism in some way so i nice. guess you know trains, trains. Uh, are related there right. so right and control of the railway so maybe that's right. just in my brain we'll see very cool very cool well i understand you know the the need to do something wild because the score as it currently sits is six for me and four for you i was in a similar position last Dear season God. and i know what it feels like so yeah. i won't take up any more of your time but first my little fast fact louise tell me true or false there are more trees in Canada than there are stars in the galaxy. All right, that's. I'm gonna say that's false. I think we underestimate just how many stars there are in this galaxy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb, a tree limb, if you will, and say that there are more stars in the galaxy than than trees in Canada. Your team star. I am team star. Always have. Well, been. that is incorrect, Luis. There oh. are more trees in Canada than there are stars in the galaxy. There's Canada no actually has around thirty percent of Earth's trees. There are an estimated 318 billion trees in Canada and only an estimated 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So maybe this is like, you know, not so much a history fact, a little more science. But when I when I heard this, I told this to my roommate and her reaction was just that's messed up. And that was the right reaction. Like that is messed (laughs) up. I don't want to say like we need to like get rid of the trees or something. But I think we all can like, you know, get together and acknowledge there's something fundamentally wrong mm-hmm. about this, right? Like, oh, yeah. I don't know. Can we make more stars? Something. Somebody do something. Some, yeah. Please. Something needs to this change. This is a cry for help. Someone do something. Yeah. Something needs to change. Not sure what, but something needs to happen about that fact. I am feeling queasy about it. <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you, Kurt. Now, now we know more and we won't be able to sleep tonight because of that. But 
until it's time for us to not go to sleep, I have two stories for you, Kurt. So what do you say we get right along with it? Yes, let's do it. All right, Kurt, we're going to start off this very first story. And I'm going to tell you that on a sunny Tuesday morning, the 22nd of August of 1911. Good year. The world would be shocked as Leonardo da Vinci's most famous painting, the Mona Lisa, also known as La Gioconda, was not found in its usual spot, hanging on the walls of the Louvre Museum in Paris. No, the world's most famous painting had been stolen, and it would not be seen again for three long years. Now, to understand how this happened, we need to go back a couple of those years. So we're going to go back to the beginning of the 1900s, specifically in the city of Paris. This is a great time for Parisian life and for French culture in general. There has been a period of rather prolonged peace starting from the 1870s, 1880s, still heading into the 1900s. This period between the 1880s and right before the World War, the First World War, has been known historically as La Belle Epoque, which means the beautiful time period, I guess, the the, the Nice. The pretty time period, the good time period, we can call it. That's one good-looking epoch you got there. Exactly. You could call it a golden age of French culture. And this, during Mm. this lasting piece, especially in Paris, things such as the arts, culture, science, literature, all of these things flourished to an extent that had not really been seen before for a while. So this was essentially the roaring 20s for France and yeah. and they were really careening down of to keep with the train metaphor they were full steam ahead on a runaway train that was heading to the precipice that was World War 1 but until that happens everything's good everything's Let great the good times roll exactly everything's great in la belle epoque but much like any other time periods of of increased economic success i guess you could call it a lot of people within Europe that were not in that living standard uh, migrated into this country. So migration during La Belle Epoque was pretty intense, to, to say mm-hmm. the least. And a lot of the people that held up all the luxuries of the more rich and wealthy individuals during this time period were naturally, as it is today, uh, was held up by a foundation of immigrants and Paris was not an exception. One of these immigrants, or a big chunk of these immigrants, was actually Italians. Italians had just finished up their unification wars in the 1870s, and there was a lot of issues and a lot of problems going on in the brand new unified Italy. So a lot of immigrants left seeking for a better life up in the French territory <laughs> now want a little little taste of the the belle epoque life you know what happens do. in the belle epoque stays in the belle epoque all and right? who wouldn't want to be in the belle epoque frankly come on baby one of these italian immigrants was a man whose name was vincenzo perugia which as we can probably tell by his name was of polish descent just kidding italian man naturally. (laughs) Vincenzo, he was uh, originally from Milan. He moves to France to seek for a better life. Uh, As he's in France, he starts getting jobs in construction as a handyman. Also, he would later call himself a painter. 
but not like an artistic painter. He would paint buildings. Right. But he he was a painter, a handyman, construction worker, etc. Among these different works that he did to try to maintain himself in this society, he was part of the team that was charged with building protective cases for different paintings that were inside the Louvre. So as we were mentioning, mm. the La Belle Epoque was a time period where arts and culture were or were approaching a zenith, right? There was more of an appreciation for the arts than there had ever been before. The Louvre was the place to be. Naturally, a lot of the paintings were in risk of potentially being stolen. Right. One of these paintings was the very famous Mona Lisa, La Gioconda, by Leonardo da Vinci. We don't really have to explain it. It's the most famous painting in the planet. At this point, it wasn't as famous as it is now. However, it had been within the public radar for a while, and the French really understood that it's a masterpiece, it's a work of, an important work of art. So they sent a group of workers to build a protective encasing for this painting that would otherwise just be hanging regularly in a gallery in the Louvre in France for anyone to just snatch, right? And what, what, would they, what would they build the encasing out of? Like, what kind of encasing was it? It was a combination of wood and glass. So wh I guess what we expect now to yeah, be the encasing. Yeah, very modern. Very, yeah, very modern. It would, it would be made of glass and another wooden piece of material to be bolted then into the wall so that it mm. wouldn't be just taken off and it wasn't hanging like in other ways. Now, it is said that during this time working for this painting, having spent a long time in very close vicinity to this painting, that Vincenzo Perugia fell in love with the Mona Lisa and eventually okay. made it his decision to procure to half this painting. Okay. And frankly, I get it. You know, okay, you know, this man <laughs> this man just says, I want this painting, and I've seen just how easy it is to get. I'm going to take it from from the Louvre. So he knows that on Mondays, the Louvre is typically closed. That's the day okay. that it closes for maintenance and for different repairs, for restorations of different paintings. So he decides that he's going to be there on Monday and steal the painting. Now, I'm going to describe to you the heist of the century. Okay, Kurt? Yes. We're yes. going to go, we're gonna go straight, straight to it. Vincenzo Perugia, on trial, which we will get to later, on trial... He describes the scene of that day, of Monday, August 21st. Mm -hmm. He says that that day, on Monday, only workers were allowed to go in to the Louvre to do the restorations and things of the sort. Having had worked in the Louvre before, he had a white smock, which was the painter's smock, a construction worker's smock. So early morning on Monday, he walks in. Everyone just thinks he's doing construction. He the skies action. Mm-hmm, exactly. Not even a mustache. He already had a mustache. This was a mustachioed man. <laughs> but he walks in, goes to the Mona Lisa, sees the casing that he himself built, unscrewed right. it, took it to a service room, took it out of the casing, took off his smock, covered the painting with his smock, and allegedly, according to Vincenzo, he walked out. The same door he came in. And it's just that easy. 
The perfect crime. And he can, and he just abandoned the Louvre from the same door he came in. Now, other stories say that maybe he came in on Sunday and he stayed in a service closet and then came out the next day and stole it. Mm. Whatever happens, this man literally walked out of the museum with the Mona Lisa. Right. Now, this raises a couple of questions. One of them, what was security like? According to this, not that great. Secondly, <laughs> how how are you going to just go in and steal this and just let someone, anyone, come into this building? That day, on Monday, which was the when the museum was closed, nobody noticed right. that the painting was gone. Right? Nobody really cared. Okay. Yeah. Until the next day, on Tuesday, when there was a painter that was scheduled to go in and paint the different paintings of the museum, as in he was going mm-hmm. to take still lives of the museum. He was scheduled okay. to go take a still life of the Mona Lisa that day. Well, they're having a really good time in France. Wow. Yeah, like, really. Let's make some paintings of our paintings. <laughs> right. Holy cow, they've got free time. This man goes in, notices the wall where the Mona Lisa used to be is empty. <laughs> he doesn't panic. This man, who was named Louis Beru, he says, hey, guys, um, the Mona Lisa's missing? I bet it's in some storage. Maybe you guys should check it out. And all the guards and everyone there says, oh, yeah, it's probably in storage. We'll go check it out. So the morning of Tuesday, of Tuesday, August 22nd of 1911, everyone's just like, all right, yeah, Mona Lisa's gone. Who cares? We'll figure it out later. It wasn't until <laughs> they checked with storage that they realized that indeed it was gone, that the police was eventually called around mid-afternoon. Police was called, and naturally, panic ensued in the museum. Well, they can just check the security cameras. Oh, yeah, naturally. 1911 security (laughs) cameras. It's just some dude eating a croissant, maybe. Now, (laughs) to make matters worse, the director of the National Museums of Paris, of, of France, was off in vacation somewhere. So he was not there to really classic see this happening. They rang him up and they asked him, hey man, the Mona Lisa's missing. What do we do? Hey, hypothetically, what would we do if the Mona Lisa got stolen? Just curious, just in case. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I don't want to trouble you and your vacation. Surely you're having a really good time. But if the Mona Lisa were to go missing, how would you react? We were just chatting and having some drinks, and Carl said the funniest thing if the Mona Lisa was stolen <laughs> right now. Like, what would you do? Like, that's yeah, crazy. Right. That's kind of <laughs> crazy. Well, Kurt, his response was even crazier. He literally responded, and I quote, that the Mona Lisa being gone would be, quote, we might as well pretend that one could steal the towers of Notre Dame, unquote. Oops. Uh-oh. <laughs> anyway, the day goes by, police get called, the Mona Lisa is confirmed as missing, this man immediately gets fired <laughs> while on vacation. <laughs> so now, the reality of the world, the reality of the situation, the Mona Lisa has gone missing, nobody knows where it's at. The Mona Lisa's missing, this being a incredible piece of artwork that the French love very, very much, and one of the most famous pieces of art in the entire world. A worldwide, or at least a nationwide search begins enforced by the French government. So different newspapers uh, start putting rewards for information 
for the location of the Mona Lisa rewards up to 25,000 francs, which was the French money at the time. Trains and ships entering and leaving France were all investigated to check if the Mona Lisa was indeed there. And one of the things they started doing, they started putting wanted posters on street <laughs> corners and it's it's just a painting of the mona lisa so they said hey have you seen this woman seen this woman and it's just the <laughs> painting of the mona lisa and it says wanted and it was a national search yeah they like declared a state of emergency like was there a curfew did they declare martial law it's crazy they, i mean i get it for the mona lisa but also Imagine that they're like searching all the trains going in and out of the country just for this one painting. Right. Everyone was panicking. No one knew where this Mona Lisa was at. What happened, though, is that somehow the Mona Lisa became more famous because now people would be going to the Louvre just to go look at the empty spot where the Mona Lisa used to hang. (laughs) And so the Louvre had never seen this amount of people wanting to go see just this missing painting, including like Franz Kafka and a couple of other literate, uh, literary artists that went in to just ogle at this empty wall. So this is wow. where we start developing culturally the importance, the cultural importance of this painting that is the Mona Lisa. Before this, it was a famous painting, but it did not reach the standards that we now associate the Mona Lisa with, the fame, the absolute just devotion to this painting. It was front page of the New York Times, front page of almost every single newspaper of the Mona Lisa's gone. There was now a craze to find this painting. Now we go back to this person that we know stole it. Uh, At this point, no one really knew. But Vincenzo Perugia, the reason why all this search did not work is because Vincenzo grabbed the painting and did not leave the country. He went back to his apartment (laughs) and put it in a chest that he had built with a false bottom and put it under his bed and did not touch it for two years. Wow. (laughs) It stayed there for two years. Vincenzo. Wow. Really just took it, just stole it. Now you'd think. So he clearly, he clearly had an idea that like it was a a highly valuable item, that it was something that like people were going to notice was missing and come looking for like in a big way. Cause I was kind of curious about like, did he just get unlucky that he just was like, oh, I like this painting. And then it happened to be one that people really immediately noticed. Yeah. But no, this is like a lot of planning and, and forethought. Like he definitely knew that this was going to cause a big storm. And, and it's interesting because investigations naturally, I mean, you're thinking if the police are going to investigate anyone, it's going to be the workers of the Louvre Museum who would probably have access to these paintings constantly. Right. And they did. They searched Vincenzo's apartment, and oh, really? didn't f- then they didn't find the Mona Lisa. <laughs> so wow. they really paid no attention to this. But the investigations continued. Funny enough, one of the people that they arrested was a man who was okay. To to put this into perspective, there was a man that came out to say, "Hey, I have an idea where this might be." It was this French man who said, I have stolen things from the Louvre. I have stolen a couple <laughs> of, of items, a couple of figurines. These figurines, I stole these and gave them or sold them to this French artist named Guillaume Apollinaire. 
for him to do artwork. Mm-hmm. And so they went to Guillaume Apollinaire and his close associate, a young Spanish painter by the name of Pablo Picasso. Oh. Who had allegedly or had seen these figurines. Pablo Picasso actually was inspired by these figurines to paint one of his most famous paintings, the Demoiselles du Avignon. And when they approached Picasso to say that Guillaume Apollinaire, his friend, had said that he stole these, Pablo Picasso said, I don't know him. I've never met him in my life, (laughs) which is not true. They were close friends. Anyway, Guillaume Apollinaire went to jail not for the stolen figurines. He went to jail for potentially having stolen the Mona Lisa. And this man was the only person <laughs> to be jailed for the Mona Lisa during this investigation. Someone that was fully not involved with this crime. So Pablo Picasso thrown into the mix, mostly because he was involved with some of the futurist and the new like art movements, including... This movement that said, let's burn all museums down to the ground. They don't matter. So, you know, naturally would come, they would think that you stole the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Wow. But, but so, so the guy was, he was accused of it and then he went to trial and they were like, we can't prove that you did this, but we think you did. So we're going to like sentence you for it. Or was it just like, you might've done this. So here's the sentence. Interestingly enough, Guillaume Apollinaire confessed to stealing it, even though he didn't. Uh, <laughs> who knows? Wait, what? Yeah, he confessed for stealing the, to stealing the Mona Lisa, even though he absolutely didn't. Who knows if there was some foul play at hand, maybe some torture? Unclear. History, that, that's, that's mm. lost to history. All the while, Vincenzo Perugia was chilling. He was just hanging out in his apartment in Paris, just letting this go by. Three years go by. He's like like eating a steak using the Mona Lisa as a plate. <laughs> Basically, right. So three years go by and he decides to go to Italy, to go back to Italy with the Mona Lisa. In his mind, he says, well, Leonardo da Vinci is an Italian artist. The Louvre has stolen a bunch of other paintings. I'm going to take this back to Italy. And mm. he goes back. He stays at this hotel in Florence and arranges to meet with the director of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, one of the most famous galleries in Italy. He goes to him under a pseudonym and says, hey, I have the Mona Lisa. Do you want it? And he pulls it out and shows it to the art director of the Uffizi Gallery. The, the guy says, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely buy it from you. Uh, let me let me actually go back with my people. You go back home. I'll figure out the price. Vincenzo says, okay. He goes back to his hotel where he is promptly met by the police and arrested. Oh, <laughs> so, oops. So this man tried selling it to the, to the Uffizi gallery and said, basically said, yeah, here's the painting that I stole. And he was arrested. Now, that's where you think the story would really end Wait, here. Wait, was, was it the gallery that turned him in or was it just like they caught up with him no i mean the art director who was not someone that was specialized in buying stolen goods he was just a legit art director he uh saw that the mona lisa was there and alerted the police about it wow not very patriotic of him you know not very patriotic of him but you know what (laughs) this this means now that well vincenzo has been arrested and you'd think this is where the story ends 
But I really need to share with you some details of the prosecution of Vincenzo uh, Perugia. Oh, boy. Because this man, having been caught for stealing the Mona Lisa, who knows what he did, but he got off very easy. So he comes in into trial, immediately pleads guilty. From the get-go, there is no denying in (laughs) that he committed this crime. Now... There's never any doubt that he did the crime. So his defense is going to pivot around the fact that he wants to be a national hero that was bringing back a priceless piece of Italian history and art back into the rightful hands of the Italian people. So that's where the defense is going to to try to find their way to get this man off easy. Wow. That is really, really bold. He's like, I'm not wrong. The law is wrong. Interestingly, so he says that he he starts going along with this defense saying this was never for any of never for any money. I never wanted any money for this. I just wanted to bring it back to its rightful place. This was then verified to be false. He had been writing letters to his children (laughs) and his family saying, oh, I'm about to be a rich, rich man. It's unrelated. Unrelated. He's he's had had a big promotion in his painting job. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, he literally writes a letter saying, get ready. We're going to be rich, baby. Basically. Anyway, he lies throughout his entire testimony, proven lies. One of the things he starts saying is that when he first moved to France, he felt a lot of anti-Italian discrimination, that his other workers would often bully him by saying a lot of derogatory Italian-related or derogatory things to him related to his Italian heritage or to, to his being an Italian man. And he stated in court that... These people would often call him manja macaroni, which means eater of macaroni, that they often stole my personal property and salted my wine. Oh, salted his wine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. His defense was that it was this that sparked just incredible nationalism from this man that inspired him to steal the Mona Lisa. The man was then sentenced to about a year and a half in jail. Oh, man. I thought he might pull it off because, you know, I was like, he's crazy because he's like, hey, jury of French people, here's why you should thank me for stealing from you. And I was like, never going to work. But then when he got to salted the wine, Mm -hmm. I feel like, I don't know, there could be, you could get 12 French people out there who might appreciate committing a little bit of, uh, you know, national scale theft because someone put salt (laughs) in your wine. I feel like that's fair. Yeah. His sentence was reduced to seven months. Yes. <laughs> I mean, slap on the honest, wrist. This man <laughs> barely got any flack for, for stealing the Mona Lisa. Uh, funny enough, though, the Mona Lisa is one of the only paintings, Italian paintings in the Louvre that was actually bought legally. Like it was purchased by the French from the Italians. So it wasn't plundered at all, like other pieces in the oh, museum. Wow. But still. This man made his case, seven months in prison, and was off scot-free. Eventually, about a year later in 1914, uh, the war, the First World War started. Vincenzo did uh, fight in the First World War, and he lived a quiet life after this. Eventually... Fought for France in the First World War? No, he fought for Italy. He went back to Italy after this whole Ah. kerfuffle and... um, 
died in the uh, early 1920s, 1925. He, yeah, that was that was his end. And mm. through all of this, we have one thing to thank him for, is that if it wasn't for him stealing it, the Mona Lisa, that is, the Mona Lisa wouldn't be as famous now as it was back then. So that's very true. This this Mona Lisa painting is as famous, as ubiquitous to our world culture as it is now because of this one man that decided on a whim, I'm going to steal it and did. And that's the story of Vincenzo Perugia. That's you know what? That's that's like such a nice, wholesome story, because like the worst thing that happened in it is some some big theft. And I feel like the guy fairly well argued his way out of it. And the history books like pretty much absolved him because the only real repercussion of it is that we're all obsessed with the Mona Lisa now. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think this was all good. All good for him. I, I'm, frankly, I'm a fan of this man. This one this one goes out to you, Vincenzo. We love you. Yeah, it's nice. It's a, it's a very, very European story, I feel. It involves a little bit of artwork, a little bit of wine. Mm-hmm. We had several countries that we just went around in between you know, to and from easily yeah. and bumped up against a world war, you know, it's classic. Yeah. And we, with, classic without even nice. going to the world war, which is always a plus, you know, we always got bummed out. This one, that's true. happy ending. This man didn't even die in the first world war. So I, yeah, that was just a little, little side quest. You yeah, know, yeah. he was like, this is none to me guys. I stole the Mona Lisa. And they're like, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> they actually wouldn't. That shoot is him true. You know, war. do you think he was chasing that high for the rest of his life? Like, what do you do after that to top, stealing the he's like he gave it back and he's like well back to painting fences <laughs> it's crazy how i'm now a national hero never to be remembered again he actually changed his <laughs> name once he went back to italy and never to be known again so who knows actually that date when he died who knows if he died in 1925 no one can confirm nor verify he's still alive could be some could say and still carrying the mona lisa under his wing all right curtis i've got a second story for you Let me set the scene for you, Kurt. Ready? Yes, let's do it. On a sunny Tuesday morning, the 22nd of August of 1911, the world would be shocked as Leonardo da Vinci's most famous painting, the Mona Lisa, also known as the Gioconda, was not found in its usual spot hanging on the walls of the Louvre Museum in Paris. The world's most famous painting had been stolen, and it would not be seen again for three years. Now, to understand how this happened, we must go back a couple of years. Oh, I feel sick. Oh, no. This, I have this coming, too. Okay. All right, Kurt. We're going to go back to 1876. Yeah, okay. 1876 had the birth of a very important man, a man that would become very important in world history. This man was Filippo Tommaso Marinetti. Ooh. Or uh, let me use it in my Italian accent. Filippo Tommaso Marinetti. Good man. Now, Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, as you can hear from his name, he was of Czech descent. Absolutely not, Kurt. Got you once more. (laughs) He was actually an Italian man. Born to Italian parents, uh, actually, funny enough, in Alexandria, Egypt. Oh. Then from there, from Egypt, he uh, grew up there, but then moved. He moved to France. Uh, He moved to France initially to become a lawyer. But after spending some time in France... As we have seen before, as we have heard, 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, this was the time of La Belle Epoque. So he moves to France 
And he's there during yeah. La Belle Epoque. So yes, La Belle Epoque. This man grows disillusion in being a lawyer and decides instead he's going to become an artist and a writer. Uh, he, he likes all of these different disciplines coming together and loves how he can put in his own political ideals into uh, his art and starts developing different um, ideas, paintings, sculptures, etc. Now... Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, you may have heard from him before, because one of the most, the things he's most well known for, probably the most uh, important thing he's well known for, is that in 1909, he published in the French magazine Le Figaro, very important political magazine of the time, he Ooh, published what was known as the Futurist Manifesto. The Futurist Manifesto was a whole piece saying, all art from now on is the beginning of a new century must represent going forward. We must tear down the quote unquote old gods, the old guard that was all this classical painting. We must focus on the new technologies that are developing and we must show that in our art. Our art must have movement. Our art must have political meaning, etc. And mm -hmm. thus with the Futurist Manifesto, the futurism movement in art was officially founded by this one Italian man. Right. Again, it, it dealt with the rejection of the old, with uh, 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 an emphasis in dynamism, aka movement, embracing modernity and all of its forms in art, in culture, in sculpture, in even cooking, futurism was, was involved. Some could even call it that this was the first avant-garde movement, this movement that really inspired all this mm -hmm. kind of modernist thoughts in art. Considering that the futurists, as they would later be, uh, be called, all hated old and embraced modernity, he, he grew a big, a significant following in France, especially with all these uh, classically trained artists that are trying to develop their own styles and trying to move into a future. He gets a gaggle of like 20 devout followers. And one of the things that they would do in these futurist outings, not only would they get together and eat and discuss art and write, they would go on excursions to different museums, including the Louvre Museum in France. One oh, of the, uh, the Louvre Museum is, at this point, I mean, the Louvre was built by Louis XVI to be a royal art gallery to show all the paintings that the royals had. And then it had become a museum to show all the best art from around the world. So naturally, it was a symbol of the past. Futurist hated that. So in December of 1910, uh, Marinetti and the rest of his futurist friends decide to go into the Louvre and stage a protest, oh. a protest where they kept people from entering the different rooms. Okay. Uh, and then they would start yelling loudly, actually reading out loud passages from the futurist manifesto, telling people essentially, wake up. You're being brainwashed by all this old art. Embrace the future. Take futurism <laughs> as your stance. We hate old art. You know, now, I mean, of course, this being the most famous uh, museum, not only in Europe, but probably the world at the time, they get kicked out of the museum for staging this protest. Uh, yeah, imagine you're, imagine you're in a museum just trying to, like, enjoy your day and there's, like, a picket line of people yelling, like, mm -hmm. wake up, sheeple. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and Marinetti was a was a person that was not 
hard to miss. Also, much like Vincenzo, had a big bushy mustache. So you can imagine just a mm-hmm. big Italian man in a heavily Italian accented French just yelling at you about how you suck for wanting to look at the <laughs> at the Venus de Milo, you know? Like that's that's just a, an image in my brain that sparks a lot of joy to me. Yeah, anyway, seriously. Since this protest uh, had been seen as a rather negative thing in the news and they really were not getting anywhere with it, they decided that they were going to make a more lasting protest, which was to steal one of the images that best represented the age of the past. Classical I wonder which one it's going to be. Oh, (laughs) Oh, you might just be surprised, Kurt. Oh? It was going to be the Mona Lisa. Oh. Now, uh... Louis, can I tell you, I feel like I'm stuck in the movie Groundhog Day right now. Like, I feel like I'm... (laughs) in a time loop this is terrible this is Mm -hmm. my insides are soup and not good soup please continue listen i'm here to ring your brain a little bit just a little bit now they devised this plan to to get inside the museum and how are they going to get inside well they know that on mondays the the louvre is closed for exclusively construction workers Mm -hmm. and people that do restorations for the paintings and even some uh some students so he gets in contact with these construction workers, which are Italian men. And Filippo Tommaso Mm. Marinetti, being an Italian man, he uses that influence that he carried with him to convince a very specific man by the name of Vincenzo Perugia to go in and steal the painting. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, the brain is soup now, too. (laughs) (sighs) So... Marinetti convinces Vincent Perugia, Vincenzo, sorry, Vincenzo Perugia to go in, steal the Mona Lisa. And he had a a gaggle of other friends to go in. Uh, About three men went in, including Vincenzo, pretending to do maintenance work. Uh, They actually had worked on the glass encasing of the Mona Lisa, so they knew how to take it apart. They did, and they walked out with it. Now, the only reason why these men, these Italian men, agreed to do this crime that would get them blacklisted across Europe because they I mean they knew that this was going to be the crime of the century right or the crime to kick off the century they didn't know that they had the little thing called World War One to distract them from other right. stuff but at this point this would be the one thing to be in the news now the way they convinced them is that Marinetti and the futurists knew that if the Mona Lisa was stolen that there would be a reward money for any information so they decided to match the the match the rewards offered by different newspapers and uh, the government, and they would pay that as yeah as payment to these to these workers that stole the Mona Lisa. Mm. So as long as you steal it, keep it hidden away, we will pay you whatever they're offering, mm. which eventually would become all the way up to twenty five thousand francs um, in that day's money. So he convinces them to join on the plot. So Vincenzo Perugia and company steal the painting. And all the, all, everything he was asked to do is to keep the painting secure in his apartment. Don't really make a big scene of it. So what does he do? He, having been a construction worker, he makes a chest with a double bottom, a false bottom, mm-hmm. and puts the painting in there and keeps mm-hmm. it there. And that's where, where he, he keeps it for safekeeping. Marinetti and the futurist, 
didn't really ask anything else, and they knew that this man was really not going to get in much trouble. So now you may ask yourself, Kurt, how did the futurists make all this money to be able to pay Vincenzo Perugia and Associates the, the reward money that they were asking? Oh, true. The futurists, as we stated before, were a collective of artists. They, they had artistic ability, and a lot of them were actually hired by different newspapers and by different government authorities to draw up replicas, reproductions of the Mona Lisa to put up as wanted posters around the city. Mm. And the futurists would get this money from really putting the Mona Lisa everywhere they could find it, uh, or everywhere they could find in the streets of Paris and, and beyond, uh. and they would get paid for this. However, since they were the ones in charge of putting these posters up, they actually got pretty sneaky with it. They would often include hidden messages within the painting or the recreations of the Mona Lisa for those that were mm. looking closely to uh, advertise or at least make up some more exciting plots for futurism or, or advocate for futurism. Not only that, they would sometimes uh, divide the posters in half. So th they would have one side of the poster that makes it look like it's just a normal wanted poster, but the rest would be futurist advertisements for different futurist galleries. So oh, this way, they would be they would be convincing or letting people know that if they're trying to look for the Mona Lisa, there's this other art movement also available. And by this, by painting and actually getting more revenue for the futurist work, they were able to secure this money to be able to pay Vincenzo and his friends to be able to just live, do nothing, but keep quiet about the Mona Lisa hiding in his apartment. Wow. This They're pulling all the strings. And frankly, the, the futurists, the futurists had a really, really interesting way of, of dealing with the world and dealing with, with worldly events and, and, and trying to use all of these instances to their, to their benefit. Right. They were, they were experts in this, I guess you could call it propaganda and, and these psyops, I guess you could say. They now, knew how to stick and move, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. They, they did. They did. Interestingly, one of the things they would put on the posters up in the Mona Lisa Wanted signs, they would constantly say the message, future of art is achieved by abandoning the past. That was their motto. Future of art is achieved by abandoning the past. And they would plaster that all over Paris. Now, moving along, nice. as investigations for this lost paintings were underway, they started actually going to different artists because artists were the, I guess, number one people after the workers to maybe have some sort of grudge against against this painting or maybe have more, more of a motive to steal a painting like the Mona Lisa. Now... One thing that the futurists would do, along with the printing of the wanted posters, they would often put Pablo Picasso paintings in these wanted posters as well. Because Filippo Tommaso Marinetti had a bit of a standing rivalry with Pablo Picasso. Because Picasso, as we know, he was developing his own style of modern art uh, by the name of Cubism. And so Cubism which tried to embrace the past but molded in a different way, kind of went against directly against the principles of futurism. Mm -hmm. So Marinetti despised Picasso and wanted to get him uh, charged for stealing the Mona Lisa. 
and he actually did. He was found to be stealing some pieces of art from the Louvre. Um, Picasso was? And he was, yeah, Picasso was, was found <laughs> stealing some pieces of art along with his friend uh, Guillaume. Right. Guillaume Apollinaire. And, you know, they, they did, they were questioned by the police. Uh, Guillaume was actually arrested also. But anyway, mm-hmm. that, that basically all of this was just to throw purposeful red herrings out to the investigators to never be able to find Vincenzo uh, Perugia. Now, a couple of things happened uh, in the upcoming years. Since the publication of the Futurist Manifesto in 1909, Marinetti had... Uh, in a way, became an, uh, he had become an international ambassador of the arts uh, to Italy in, in France. He notices that regarding the Mona Lisa, with it being gone, the news and governments were actually talking about this painting a lot. And a new nationalistic idea around the painting started to develop where Italians, Italian government officials and the Italian public actually demanded that the Mona Lisa were to be brought to its rightful place, that mm. was Italy. At this point, it is very 19... Very patriotic of them. Very patriotic, yeah. But at this point, it is 1923... Sorry, no, not 1923. 1913, sorry. I skipped about 10 years there. It is 1913, and Filippo Tommaso Marinetti notices that kind of crowds are dying down. They really don't have the money to keep paying Vincenzo. And he notices this whole nationalistic attitude toward the Mona Lisa. So he decides he is going to go back to Italy with the painting and he's going to keep it as a bargaining chip uh, with the growing tensions that are happening in Europe. I mean, as we as we see 1913, the, the tensions are, are they're boiling. The water's boiling and it's about to boil over as we would see mm-hmm. the next year for the First World War. Mm-hmm. As he leaves Italy, he did not establish the payment to keep going to Perugia. Oops. And Perugia gets really angry, gets really upset at him. And so he rats out Marinetti. Oh. So as he's crossing the Alps on this train, Tommaso is arrested as he is reaching Milan. So he is arrested by Italian authorities that were working together with French authorities. And he is taken to the police station with the Mona Lisa in tow. So... Marinetti is now arrested in around September of 1913. In December, his trial starts because he was actually extradited to France in order to be uh, trialed there because Mm -hmm. the Mona Lisa is legally a French painting, legally. Uh, So he goes back to France and his trial begins in December. He makes some really interesting cases for, for his defense. Does he? Yeah, he admits that he was actually uh, stealing the Mona Lisa. He, mm. That's for sure. That's that's in not not in any doubt. However, mm. he claims that stealing that painting that actually more good to society, saying in trial that all art is for dogs. <laughs> Basically saying, if you're an artist, you are nothing more than a pet to your patrons. All art, unless it's futurist art, is for dogs. And by removing the Mona Lisa, I actually opened your eyes to, to the rest of the world, to the rest of the wildly developing world that we are trying to get out here. And the only reason that the futurists are focused in art is to is as a gateway drug to all the different things that the futurism movement has to offer. Mm. He actually said that uh, he actually should have burned it and never actually oh. kept it hidden. And 
people naturally get really mad at this. Um, but he tries to win back the favor of Italians by saying, whatever happens to the painting, whether it's lost, whether it's taken back, whether it's burnt, it that decision should all fall onto the Italians and the Italian government because this painting rightfully belongs in Italy, period. That's Marinetti for uh, his, his crime of stealing the Mona Lisa. Hmm. Because of this, he was not in very good graces with the public, and he was known as a bit of an agitator, uh, considering the Futurist Manifesto yeah. and such. So he gets sentenced to three years in prison in France. And he starts serving his prison sentence in in France. Now, as he's there, he actually gets released a couple years, uh, about a year later, because as we've been hinting at, the war begins in summer of 1914. This trial and him being in prison is in December. So he really only serves out about seven months of his sentence. Oh, just seven months. Is that right? Yeah, only seven months. Interesting. And he actually gets released from French prison because he has no way to work at the labor camps that the French were sending their prisoners. So the French were sending all their prisoners to labor camps to aid the war effort. But Marinetti gets released because he had a bit of a faulty leg. So they're like, we have no use for you. Just just get out of here, <laughs> essentially. Um, so he leaves, he leaves the prison. But now he's been marked for having stolen the Mona Lisa. Essentially, he's he's in a in a not enforced house arrest. Mm. And it's during this time that he goes back to Italy and in Milan he befriends a journalist. He befriends a journalist who is the director of this magazine named Avanti. Okay. Uh, this this magazine is a political magazine, kind of similar to Le Figaro, the one where he initially published the the manifesto. And this journalist wants to turn this story into a success for Italy and try to rile the Italian people into this sense of nationalistic pride. And especially more now that there's a world war happening. Right. I mean, they need all the pride they can get. Funny enough, the the name or the person who is the director of the Avanti magazine is uh, Benito Mussolini. Oh. The famed journalist Benito Mussolini. Yeah, this is something interesting. Benito Mussolini was a journalist before he became what we all remember him as. Uh, (laughs) He was the director of Avanti magazine, and he wanted to turn this story as as a national, something to be nationally proud of. For the Italian people, you can start seeing some hints of where his mind would go later. Maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, extend his hand a little too much. Talk um, more but... about that national pride, Benito. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Hey, um, do you know the railway in Italy? <laughs> yeah, this should uh, actually run better. He said, <laughs> guys, I have an idea. Um, but uh, so Benito fights in World War one and he he's part of the army for uh Italy after he gets out of the war he stays in contact with Filippo Tommaso Marinetti and discussing their ideas Marinetti actually came out in uh support of this new growing movement that would become fascism he actually as a bit of a sequel to his futurist movement yeah or to, to his Futurist Manifesto, which was written in 1909. Ten mm-hmm. years later, in 1919, 
he would write the fascist manifesto. Wow. Which interestingly would echo a lot of the things that he would outline in the futurism futurist manifesto, which these ideas of progress, these ideas of industrial revolution, these ideas of let go of the past, move forward, actually aligned with this new greater nationalist movement that was beginning in Italy, known as the fascist manifesto. We we all know who loved this fascist manifesto, Benito Mussolini, the rest is right. history, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Filippo uh, lived out the rest of his life, continued to be uh, politically active, and uh, yeah, he really died being known for the for being the founding father of futurism and in order to cement futurism as an important art movement in the annals of history he cemented that by stealing what is now one of the most if not the most famous painting in the entire world leonardo da vinci's the mona lisa wow 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 oh yeah a little bit of a story involving everything we know and love, fascism, art, and Italians. Yeah, <laughs> truly everything we know and love. Okay, well, look, I have, I have only one thing to say specifically about this story, and then yeah. we gotta, we gotta move on to talking about everything as a whole because I'm, I'm suffering over here. But my, my one thing I wanted to say that I yeah. really love about this story is that it's like little domino. Artists in France are mad about the Mona Lisa, Big Domino, the invention of risotto, you know? <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Grain shortage in Italy. <laughs> the two stories haven't been done in a way, Kurt. I, I think I, I will remind you of the two stories. One of them was about the stealing of the famed Mona Lisa painting by yeah. Leonardo da Vinci by a sole alone immigrant working for his own desires and needs. Seriously, a man that just had an idea one day to steal the Mona Lisa and did. Right. The second story is how the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci was stolen from the galleries of the Louvre by a disgruntled artist named Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, who then would spark a new wave of national pride for the country of Italy that would eventually lead to some atrocities committed by the regimes of fascist dictators later in the century. Yeah. What do you think, Kurt? Stockwell. I like to I like to think of it as there's the Vincenzo works alone timeline and the international conspiracy creation of fascism timeline, you know? Mm -hmm. So like like mm -hmm. the two the two alternate ways it played out. Okay, first let me say, I, I I definitely have this coming, right? Because I have before tormented you with like giving all my main characters the same name. But I think yeah. I truly underestimated like how derailing it is to experience a mind game like this. <laughs> I really, really, oh my gosh, I was suffering for the whole story. Like, yeah, it was just so hard to focus on the details because I was just so caught in like, I feel like this is a bad dream or something. What is happening? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it make, makes it really hard to even separate things out. But either way, it, it you know, is kind of like the mix of thrill and terror of a good roller coaster. You know, I, I was, mm. I was like suffering, but also enjoying it. But yeah, I, I really, I really am, uh, am, am quite in a, a maze of mind games right now. So this, this one's, it's looking good for you at the moment, but, but we'll, we'll see. I think uh, 
it might be time for us to move on to our favorite least favorite part of the podcast Luis. and you've got a hard hard job ahead of you kurt i'm i'm sure so really that's without further ado let's move on to deliberation two stories involving the mona lisa being stolen from the louvre i don't have to repeat them for you you already know <laughs> now it's up to you to decide what did happen how was the mona lisa stolen and why was it stolen kurt in what room and with the candle holder? Who knows? <laughs> well, you know, first, first, let me say, uh, after you finish the first story, the, the Vincenzo Works Alone timeline, really arrogantly, I thought, okay, I have personally seen the Mona Lisa, and I'm, like, very interested in history. I think that's apparent by me doing this podcast. So I feel like if this had happened, I would know some part of it. Only to discover that either way, it's a story that I have just somehow completely <laughs> missed. <laughs> Um, so the Vincenzo working alone timeline, you know, it's pretty wacky, but I think in my mind, it fits pretty nicely in the realm of like crazy things can happen except for maybe the court case at the end where he's like getting a reduced sentence based on the argument that they salted his wine. But like I said, I don't know, maybe that would work in France, honestly. Mm. Um, but okay. That one, that one's really great. Then we come to the international conspiracy timeline, and I just feel like there's so many details connecting it together. But then at the same time, in my mind, it gets hard to separate like what was the first story and what was the second story. But that one feels like if you made that up, that's a lot of information to have made up. And especially, you know, I was trying to like work out backwards, uh, for example, like the poster scheme. So, okay, one of those things was true that either they put up the posters and then you thought of the other details or there was part of the scheme to put up the posters to make money and then you stole that as a detail for the other version. But I really just can't figure out which way it is. The only thing I will say is that it seems like the futurists, some of their schemes as far as like they're going to pay off, keep paying off the people on and on, it seems like maybe they would try to just get the Mona Lisa from them. And then the leverage would be that like, if they turn you in, they're also incriminating themselves. And then also the, that they're where they're putting up the posters and, and that's their income or, you know, that's drumming up business for them to then pay these people off. I feel like, I mean, that's really clever if they figured that out, but also how would you know that was going to work beforehand? And if you didn't get the money from that, you'd just be like really in trouble. But then when we get to the end, the detail about Benito Mussolini being a journalist, uh, which which I knew this, but of him using this piece about the Mona Lisa and, and kind of creating this narrative. Man, that detail feels so, so real. It just like made me rethink the whole thing. So I'll be honest, Luis, in this moment, I think like uh, I'm, I'm really li- getting the Luis Mejia experience because I feel like I could go either way. As as you put it, I'm I have the brain of a terrified chihuahua right now, mm-hmm. and I really don't know what's going to happen. I, you know, I, um, I, I just want to show you what that's like, Kurt. I want you to, <laughs> to step into my shoes for if, 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 if only for a moment and, and see just how confused I am often just at a yeah. working base level. And I want you to just get a, a little bit of a taste of that. And, you know, I, I had to do I, ha, I had to tell you these stories to do that. So 
I apologize. Yeah. Kurt, but that's just the way it is. And you know, and and maybe maybe I'll I'll learn something from the experience, Luis. You know, maybe I'll I'll be a little kinder afterwards. This is like this podcast version of a Christmas Carol. You, you know, won't be. Um, you won't be. And we both. <laughs> no, know I won't it, be. Kurt. But come on. I mean, let me tease it. Like that's fun. If uh, I was Ebenezer yeah. Scrooge and you were a bunch of ghosts. Okay. <laughs> Enough games. All right. We got to get out of here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He pulled the trigger, dude. Okay. You know what, Luis? I think I'm I'm investing in you. All right. I think that you did come up with all the details of the futurist and Benito Mussolini loved this idea and the international conspiracy. I think that the Vincenzo working alone timeline is the true story and the international conspiracy is a Luis Mejia original. That's my final answer. Well, Kurt, call me Manji Macaroni and salt my wine because you are correct. That is true. Oh. Wow, good job, pal. Oh yeah, wow. No, that, that is that that is the right way around. That's that's exactly I just learned some things. That feels that feels nice, but wow, that was amazing. That was <laughs> that really that really knocked me out, Luis. I gotta say. I'm I'm quite flustered. Yeah, you know, it, it was a story where I uh, I had heard some time ago about the story of the stealing of the Mona Lisa, uh, which eventually catapulted it out to uh, fame and fortune. And I, and I have to, to give credit. Uh, I, I start, I read a bunch of different magazine articles and uh, a couple excerpts from some books, but I did get the inspiration initially from uh, a YouTuber who released a video on just the fame of the Mona Lisa and that YouTuber is We're in Hell. So I, just a quick shout out to them for uh, that video, check them out if you nice. can. But yeah, hearing the story of, of Vincenzo Perugia, this Italian immigrant who decided one day on a whim to steal the Mona Lisa really stuck Vincenzo with me. Vincenzo the mad lad. Vincenzo the mad lad, seriously. The fact that he decided he had nothing to lose, I'm just gonna walk in and steal it and walk out the same door, that's just so funny to me. The, the circumstances yeah. of that whole event are just really, really funny, especially to the trial when he would change his testimony, even though he had already confessed and given different details like right. pre-trial. <laughs> this man just had no shame in, in doing all of this. And I think that's what makes the story just so much fun. But he did get a reduced sentence for uh, stealing the Mona Lisa because he did win over the hearts of uh, the French people, the hearts of the Italian people, to the point where he was considered a national hero uh, because he tried to take back a painting that rightfully, quote-unquote, belonged to Italy. And yeah, it was with that that I wanted to... I, I wanted to initially give you two stories about stealing a famous painting. However, I realized that I could just put the same story again on there. And that's when I, 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 I did the really inspiring Google of famous events in the early 1900s, Europe. And I came up with the futures, which is something, the futures are someone I had read about before and was familiar with. And I knew that it's a movement that started with Italians by Filippo Tommaso mm. Marinetti. So that's real. Filippo Tommaso Marinetti was a real man. The future. Oh, I was. You know what, Luis? I would have given you that name. I was willing to credit that to you. Oh, really? No, big no. Hug, that, big kiss. Credit that one to history, baby. Uh, but Philly, about Marinetti was indeed a real man, and in 19, not, 1909, he indeed published the Futurist Manifesto, which, again, was all about moving forward, dynamism in, in art, break down with mm -hmm. old tradition, and keep going. Everything right. beyond there is pretty much made up. <laughs> I wanted to see how the futurist could potentially fit into this story. 
and I figure out, okay, they're trying to move ahead. What if they steal the Mona Lisa? But let's throw in another wrench. Let's use the same person to steal the Mona Lisa. And right. we actually get kind of lucky that the painting was returned in 1913 because since we're pushing right up to the First World War, we can start using this idea of national identity in order to, 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 to give a little bit of color to the story. Now, everything, yeah. all of the details of paying Vincenzo are fake, except for the 25,000 franc mark. That is a real reward, but that was never paid to anyone. The oh. posters, the wanted posters were a real thing. That's a real thing that that happened, but it was mm -hmm. just a government, <laughs> a government <laughs> uh, m move to try to hide people out uh, with the Mona Lisa. Um, right. That did happen, growing tensions naturally right before the First World War. And the last thing that I made up is, uh, well, th the last thing that I didn't made, make up is uh, the fascist manifesto was written by Marinetti in 1919. Really? Yes, that, that was a thing he wrote. Eventually, he did become disillusioned with the whole way fascism was taken form in the form of uh, a short young Italian man named Benito Mussolini. He was not. I was going to say, that. did, did he change his mind over the course of the next 30 years? He, I wonder he how'd did. that go for him? Yeah, he did. <laughs> um, but he did have conversations with Benito Mussolini once that man started getting into power, but he changed his mind about just, he, he thought that fascism did not work out the way that he had envisioned. However, right. The fascists love the futurist movement and they really, really took in, mm. took, took up to it. Um, Benito Mussolini was indeed a journalist. Uh, I had, you know, to, to, to bring up the, the, the only profession that man is known for. Um, right. but yeah, other than that, it's a, it's a made up story that somehow fit in pretty well. Uh, last detail, Pablo Picasso was very much held in contempt for the crime. <laughs> uh, Pablo Picasso, who was just hanging out, fully agreed to have taken part in stealing some pieces of the Louvre. And nothing happened to him, <laughs> which <laughs> Very I just, Pablo I just think that's that's really lovely. Um, yeah, it really is. But yeah, you 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 got it correct, pal. Good job. Yeah. Wow that that was amazing because you know the first story, like I was saying about, it's really nice because it all kind of worked out, so it's very wholesome. But you know, it, it really does feel like you're watching Vincenzo flailing around, just kind mm -hmm. of almost living moment to moment, but also like. Like he's got a plan, but maybe it's not a good idea. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that feels very human. And just to see someone kind of like with a plan, but no real overarching plan, just bouncing around in life. And it's nice to see it all work out. It makes it really tempting to believe. But then, you know, part of me was also thinking like, maybe this is a little too good to be true. Uh, but then the other story has this quality where it feels like there's so many things going on that it makes it feel really real because this is especially, you know, like stories from this time period in Europe where you're leading up to the turn of the century in the first world war. It does seem like there's these intersections of all these various things going on in other countries and other important movements and these world events that just kind of like will pop up into the story that you, you have to kind of mention this thing before you explain what happened here. Um, but then it also it does have quite a quite a cast of like, you know, various major things going on in that time yeah. period. So it, it also had a quality where it felt like very tempting to believe because uh, it felt real, but like in a very over the top way where it was fantastically real. 
Um, so yeah, truly you, you really had me right up, right up until the last second there. That one was, was just basically down to, to a coin flip, I guess. But that, that brings our score to seven for me and four for you, Luis. Damn shame. But you know what, you know what I felt, I felt the heat of the sun if, if only for a moment and and it felt (laughs) nice. It felt nice to, to, uh, feel the sun on my face and the, the, the cold grass beneath my feet. That was nice. I, I saw it right in front of me. Uh, but yet, <laughs> yet like like Orpheus and Eurydice, Eurydice, I had to turn around and get it seen taken all away from me. Um, but it's okay. You know what? It's fine by me. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> it's a win. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, we keep talking about recently. You, you make uh, tragic tragic Greek hero look good. So yep, you're you're inhabiting it well. You Thank know, you. Continuing to, I guess. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. This Icarus flew very close to the sun, and boy, he felt good for a moment. It was toasty. <laughs> but briefly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we are coming to an end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Unbelievable Podcast. What did you think? Did you get a correct, like, Kurt, once again, that blasted man? Or... Were you fooled mm. by my great abilities to paint the journalistic profession in a very positive light as to bring up Benito Mussolini's past? Let us know. We are on the social media sites. We are on Instagram at Unbelievable Pod. We are on Twitter, potentially now also called X. We are at Unbelievable PC. The artist formerly <laughs> known as Twitter, we're on there. And uh, you can find us really much anywhere else. You can uh, seek out podcasts, tell your friends, or don't tell your friends. We don't really care. Give us a rating or don't. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah. Go outside, anyway, touch grass. Yeah. For the love of God, do that, too. Uh, we, <laughs> we certainly need that. But thank you. Thank you once again, as always, for listening to this show. Curtis. And remember, if you get arrested in France, just tell them someone salted your wine. Works every time every time. Bye. See ya.